Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What does it mean to be converted to Christ? Find out in our special study of conversions in the book of Acts. The word conversion and its cognates are fairly common in the Bible as a whole, and in the book of Acts in particular. But according to students of religion and philosophy, the concept of conversion is unique in religious history to the faith of Yahweh, first in biblical Judaism, and finally in its fulfilled form, Christianity. In his book, Conversion, the Old and New in Religion, from Alexander the Great to Augustine of Hippo, Arthur Nock observed that the concept of conversion was completely unknown in ancient heathen religions, where religion was a part of national identity. Nock observes that conversion only fits into a religion that is exclusive, creedal, or belief-oriented rather than cultural, and transformative. He defines conversion as the reorientation of the soul of an individual, his deliberate turning from indifference or from an earlier form of piety to another, a turning which implies a consciousness that a great change is involved, that the old was wrong and the new was right. Christianity is just such a religion. And that is one of the things that sets it apart from other religions of the world and of the past. Sometimes modern, non-religious people criticize Christianity for invading other cultures and societies and world views and not being willing to leave well enough alone. But that's the very nature of the religion. Without an effort to convert the world, whatever one may have, it is not Christianity. The preeminence of conversion in true Christianity is especially seen in the book of Acts. J.W. McGarvey, who was, in my opinion, one of the greatest commentators on the book of Acts, even went so far as to declare conversion the theme of the book altogether. Although I think McGarvey overstates the point, I want to consider what he had to say on the matter. Much of the greater part of Acts may be resolved into a detailed history of cases of conversion and of unsuccessful attempts at the conversion of sinners. If we extract from it all cases of this kind, with the facts and incidents preparatory to each and immediately consequent upon it, we will have exhausted almost the entire contents of the narrative. All other matters are merely incidental. The events of the first chapter were designed to prepare the apostles for the work of converting men. The gift of the Holy Spirit to them and to others was to qualify them for it. The admission of the Gentiles was an incident connected with the conversion of Cornelius and others after him. The conference in the 15th chapter grew out of these conversions, and the long account of Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Rome with his sea voyage and shipwreck constitute but the connected history of his preaching to the mob in Jerusalem, to the Sanhedrin, to Felix, to Festus, to Agrippa, and to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. 
The episode in the twelfth chapter concerning the persecutions by Herod and his death is designed to show that even under such circumstances, the word of God grew and multiplied. All the remainder of the history consists unmistakably in detailed accounts of conversion. That's from the original commentary on Acts. Now, as I said earlier, I think that McGarvey overstates the case, especially to regard all of the other material as merely incidental. If you listen to our first episode, An Introduction to the Book of Acts, you may recall that we identified the theme of the book as the establishment and increase of the kingdom of God on earth. Of course, in our earlier episodes, we explained how the increase of the kingdom of God occurs by the conversion of the lost, the transformation of sinners into the image of Jesus Christ, the unification of the believers, and the increase of the knowledge of God. I think it's fair to say that while Acts may focus on all of those points, it focuses on the conversion of the lost most of all. We called the Great Commission the Marching Orders of the Kingdom, and certainly the book of Acts is appropriately regarded as the commission executed, to use the language of the late E.V. Zollers. So I would undoubtedly call cases of conversion one of the major sub-themes of the book of Acts, to be sure. One of the reasons why cases of conversion in Acts are especially significant is because the book documents a time of eschatological fulfillment and dispensational shift. With the ascension and coronation of Jesus, the last days were inaugurated. The new covenant came into force, and the authority of Moses began to vanish and pass away before the glorious and universal authority of Jesus the Christ. Because of this, incidents of conversion that might be identified in the former dispensations, even in the Gospels, when, according to Christ and the apostles, the law of Moses was still in full and unaffected power, are not to be considered as exemplary except in regard to the basis of all conversion, which is today and ever has been, faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly the Apostle Paul uses men from former dispensations, such as Abraham and David, to prove justification by faith. But he does not bind any of the conditions of pardon from those past ages on anyone in this age. In fact, he refused to do that and condemned it in the strongest terms possible. As McGarvey puts it, if it be asked why we may not as well take for our model the cases of conversion which occurred under the former dispensation or during the life of Jesus, the answer is obvious. We do not live under the law of Moses or the personal ministry of Jesus, but under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, just previous to his ascension, committed the affairs of his kingdom on earth into the hands of twelve men to be guided by the Holy Spirit who descended shortly after he ascended, and now all that we can know of present terms of pardon must be learned through the teaching and example of these men. If then the conditions of pardon under any preceding dispensation be found to differ from those propounded in Acts, in all the points of difference the latter and not the former must be our guide. These are the last and certainly the most elaborately detailed communications of the divine will upon the subject, and belong peculiarly to the new covenant under which we live. If God has made them to differ in any respect from those under the old covenant, he teaches us by this very difference 
that he has thus far set aside the old through preference for the new. In this episode, I'm not going to spend any time dealing with the oft-asked question of the thief on the cross, but I will be sharing an article by Shahe Jurjan entitled To Paradise that marvelously addresses that issue, and you can find a link to the article on bspoftulsa.com. All I have to say on that subject of the thief at this point is that his case does not appear in the book of Acts and is not, therefore, under our consideration. When we talk about cases of conversion, we have in mind a few extended and detailed narratives in the book of Acts that begin by introducing a person who's not a Christian, not a disciple, but rather is a lost sinner. Yet as the narrative progresses, things change and the individual is saved and ends up being a disciple with all the blessings and privileges of a child of God redeemed through Jesus Christ. While the book of Acts records and announces many conversions, not all are described with any great detail. In many cases, Luke uses the most laconic expressions and offers the briefest details possible. As Kenneth Kurkowski notes, perhaps Luke's expectations of his readers are high, but he seems to expect that his readers can fill in the blanks. However, there are certain occasions, numbered differently by different Bible students, when the Spirit of God moved Luke to give special focus on details of the conversion, and even if never exhaustively, to completely articulate the conversion process. That is, to describe the conversion in such a way that one might imitate the record and conclude that his or her experience was essentially identical to the person in the biblical account. We believe this is meaningful and valuable because it establishes a pattern for conversion. I realize that with some people these days, belief in biblical patterns or systems is outdated and reflects an ignorance of modern methods of reading the Bible. Patternism is a favorite pejorative against those who hold to a meaningful concept of apostolic authority and who believe that Christianity today should fundamentally resemble Christianity at its beginning, at least in the senses specified by the Holy Spirit. But I do believe that. I believe that the Bible contains a pattern of sound doctrine, 2 Timothy 1.13, patterns of ethical and moral conduct, Titus 2.7 and Philippians 3.17, and patterns of religious praxis in worship, church organization, and ministry, 1 Corinthians 4 and 17. I believe in a pattern for conversion. 1 Timothy 1.16, the Apostle Paul wrote, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In fact, through all apostolic teaching, there are clear statements that every Christian is saved and brought into a relationship with God through Christ according to a normative, uniform, and universal process. In Jude verse 3, Jude speaks of our common salvation. And while circumstances prevented him from elaborating on it as he would have liked, other New Testament writers do what he could not. The Apostle Paul assumes that faith, repentance, and baptism for the remission of sins will be the common experience of every person who is a Christian. In fact, he knows of no such thing as a Christian who has not believed on Christ, 
repented, and been baptized to be delivered from sin. In Acts 19, verses 1 through 5, when Paul encountered a group of men in Ephesus who identified themselves as disciples, he asked, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? Of course, we'll discuss this incident in more detail in time, but consider at this moment that Paul assumed that every disciple has believed and has been baptized. He did not ask if they had believed or if they had been baptized. He assumes it. When you believed, into what then were you baptized? He regards it as a given part of the experience of everyone who becomes a Christian because it is a part of the pattern of conversion. Similarly, when Paul wrote to Christians in Galatia or Rome or Colossae to describe the consequences of being saved, he would say, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, Romans 6, 3-4. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Galatians 3, 27. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, through faith in the working of God, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In each of these cases, Paul assumes that everyone in the churches to which he was writing has been baptized and reasons with them from that common experience. Why would he assume that? Because they were all Christians. And there was a pattern for conversion to Christianity of which baptism is an indispensable and absolute part. In reality, most people consider that salvation should have a certain look or feel to it. Generally, in religious history, those who wanted to convince others that they were converted would give wild stories about bright lights, and strange internal feelings and sensations, and visions of angels, or even encounters with the Lord Jesus himself. Another quote from McGarvey is fitting here. It is well known that the recital by men of the process of their conversion is well calculated both to teach sinners the process through which they must struggle in order to conversion and to stimulate them to undertake it. Men are taught more successfully and influenced more powerfully by example than by precept. Many religious teachers of the present day, having discovered the practical workings of this principle in human nature, depend much more in their efforts to convert sinners upon well-told experiences than upon the direct preaching of the word. The success which has attended this policy should admonish us that these experiences of conversion recorded in Acts are by no means to be lightly esteemed as instrumentalities for the conversion of the world. They possess indeed this advantage, that in contrast with all the conversions of the present day, they were guided by infallible teaching and were selected by infallible wisdom. If a sinner seeks salvation according to the model of modern conversions, he may be misled, for his model is at best fallible and may be erroneous. But if he imitates these inspired models, it is impossible for him to be misled unless the Holy Spirit itself can mislead him. 
Moreover, in so far as any man's supposed conversion does not accord with these, it must be wrong. In so far as it does accord with them, it must be right. Someone may respond that McGarvey assumes that all conversions ought to resemble one another in certain fundamental ways, and he certainly does assume that, because in the passages we noted a moment ago, the Bible teaches it. There are three major points that may be learned by analyzing the cases of conversion. First, who can be converted? Second, what are the agencies and instrumentalities involved in individual conversion? And third, what are the changes affected in an individual as a result of conversion? In the passage noted a moment ago, 1 Timothy 1.16, the Apostle Paul looks back on his former life and his grave sins. In fact, he calls himself the chief of sinners. He explains, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. However, Paul says, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. As we examine the cases of conversion in Acts, we're going to find all ethnicities, all social, economic, and religious backgrounds, all kinds of people, slaves and politicians, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, noble and nefarious, being converted to faith in Christ. And it shows the striking literalism of Jesus' charge in the Great Commission to make disciples of every creature in all nations in all the world. However, the cases of conversion not only demonstrate who can be converted, but how to be converted, or to use the words of McGarvey, the agencies and instrumentalities of conversion. First, we learn in all cases that God is the initiator of conversion. It was his work to reconcile the world to himself, and all of his great acts in history since man sinned in the garden are included, culminating in his work through Jesus Christ. However, God's work in conversion both invites and demands a human response. It is a synergistic work, a work that must be received by man, and if it is not, then it is not effective. There may be no concept more vociferously denied by the majority of professed Christian teachers at the present time, but all their protests do not change the plain facts of what the book of Acts presents. There is no case of conversion in the whole book in which a person was saved who did not respond to God's work. No case that presents man as wholly passive in conversion. Instead, the case of the Jews on Pentecost, which we've already considered, is the consistent picture. The sinners heard the preaching concerning God's work in and through Christ. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were brought under conviction by the preaching and asked, what shall we do? They were not told, do nothing. There's nothing you can do. Conversion is a monogistic work of God. Instead, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Acts 2.38, and he admonished them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves is literally a command to escape, but it is nonsense. 
if there is not a measure of personal responsibility to do something on the one to whom the command is given. Again, Kenneth Kukrowski is correct to observe Luke views conversion in terms of a synergism between God and humans, with God's action always primary. Luke feels free to stress either God's action or the human response. When Luke emphasizes God's activity, it is not a denial of the appropriate human response. Conversely, when Luke emphasizes the human response, it is not a denial of God's grace and salvation. Instead, Luke presumes both are at work. We propose that conversion in Acts always involves the work of God, both his past accomplished work in Christ and his present ongoing work in bringing his purposes about through the church and by his mighty power and providence, and the work of men. Conversion never takes place without the preaching of the gospel by a human preacher and always involves the response of belief, repentance, and baptism. In our future studies, we will consider further the meaning of belief or faith, repentance, and baptism as those terms are defined by their use in Acts. Finally, the conversion, uh, the cases of conversion demonstrate the consequences of conversion or the changes affected in the lives and hearts of those who experience conversion. In Acts, the consequences emphasized regard the remission of sins and participation in the kingdom of God, with a strong emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. There are many things we can say about the work of the Holy Spirit, but that will be for another time, when we have a special study, likely toward the end of our time in this book, on the pneumatology, or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Before we conclude, however, it is important to note that in the last several years, recent scholarship has come to insist that if there is a normative pattern for conversion in Acts, it has several major exceptions. Of course, in reality, a normative pattern with several major exceptions can hardly be maintained as a normative pattern. But I will admit that in the case of Kenneth Kukrowski of Abilene Christian University, the exceptions are explained as truly exceptional and relating to special circumstances in the unfolding of the scheme of redemption that would not be repeated in the lives of modern men and women. However, even still, I think this is an unwarranted and incorrect interpretation of the situations under consideration. Basically, the underlying belief is that in Acts, salvation is equated with the reception of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit comes upon a person, then they're saved. If not, then they are not saved. Now, we stated a moment ago, we will delay any deep comments on the pneumatology of Acts for a later study, but I do want to challenge this way of thinking right now. First, consider Acts 19, 1-5, which we mentioned earlier. In that narrative, Paul assumed the disciples have believed and been baptized, but he did not assume they had received the Holy Spirit. He asked them if they had, and their answer reveals that something was seriously amiss with their whole conversion experience. My point is that whatever it means to receive the Holy Spirit in Acts, Paul does not equate it with salvation and he does not assume it must have happened in the life of anyone who is a Christian. If, in our reading of Scripture, we come across something that doesn't fit with our suppositions of the way things are, 
It may be that we have found an exception to the rule, but more likely we have discovered that our suppositions about the way things are are flawed. This is certainly the case when uh, exceptions begin to pile up. If we let the Word of God be our teacher, and we do not insist on adhering to some dogmatic tradition from the history of interpretation, we will find that there is indeed a pattern of conversion revealed in the book of Acts. It is plain, clear, and consistent. The cases of conversion are a treasure of inestimable value because, as McGarvey said, whoever imitates these inspired models, it is impossible for him to be misled unless the Holy Spirit itself can mislead him. Moreover, insofar as any man's supposed conversion does not accord with these, it must be wrong. Insofar as it does accord with them, it must be right. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and